Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. Um, while you're turning there, I want to give you a quick update on something. This past week, we began to have conversations with a church that is a sister church in Cape Coral, Florida. We're connected to them through one of the interns that was here this past summer, Haley. And it became evident through conversations that there was a really big need down there. And on Thursday, it began to materialize that there's a few things that they needed. They need people to come. Um, to help with debris and uh, tree removal. They needed some help uh, placing tarps on damaged roofs because uh, they were not able to keep up with how much that needed to take place. And then there was a lot of flood damage where they needed to go and gut some homes altogether and just do some repair work um, as well. But more than anything, uh, the request was their church is really tired uh, because they've been working nonstop around the clock with uh, meeting the needs of their congregation and their immediate community. And so uh, we learned about all of this, and on Thursday, uh, put a call out to anybody interested in being a part of a team that would go down. And it was very short notice because we learned about it on Thursday. So don't get mad. <laughs> like, why didn't we have more time? Because we learned about it on Thursday, and we sent them on Friday. And so Friday, we uh, had a team gather that were interested. And um, Saturday morning, one group left driving, uh, with some supplies to get down there. And this morning at 8 o'clock, another group flew from Indy uh, down to Florida to participate in working as well. They're going to be there all week. Here's a list of the names of those who went on the trip. And you can take a picture of that, or we can send it out in an email, follow-up email, so you can be praying for these. Um, yes, that does say Ben, Caitlin, and Jack are down there. Um, and they're going to be working uh, all week, loving and caring for a community that's trying to rebuild and clean up. And so I love it that we put a call out Thursday, and this, is, this team's already on their way to Florida uh, to help and serve. Just I love this church uh, and that we were able to do that. So two ways for you to be involved in this uh, from here. One is financially. And so we uh, are going to have to pay for this trip to go down. And so one of the ways we're asking for some help is anything you put in the bucket, you know, we have the buck in a bucket ministry there the, in the back and both exits. You can just put uh, funds in there this week and next week. These two Sundays, everything put in those buckets will go toward offsetting the cost of the trip and just blessing that church uh, with any excess uh, that's put in the buckets. The other way is that you could join us in praying. And we've asked the entire church uh, to set an, a reminder on their phones for 10 a.m. every day. Starting tomorrow, 10 a.m., no matter where you're at, as we're spread out, if you would just pause for a moment and pray for this team while they're working and doing things there in Florida. So 10 o'clock, we're all going to commit to praying together for them. Um, So thank you, church, for being generous. Thank you for praying. Thank you for supporting this. Uh, And the church in Florida is sending their thanks to you as well. Let's pray together, and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for those who are going on this trip and ask a special blessing over them. Uh, God, I ask that you'd provide them uh, safety while they travel, energy while they work, encouragement and wisdom to know what to say and how to help best. Uh, God, we thank you for them, their willingness to go and serve. As we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would speak clearly to us this morning. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. February the 7th, 2008. Sarah and I were living in Lincoln, Illinois while I was in seminary. And we spent that evening on February the 7th with our small group at the church there in Lincoln that we were a part of, Jefferson Street Christian Church, that we were part of there. And uh, we had a gathering with our small group, uh, who happened to be the preacher and his wife leading this group. 
And it was a Super Bowl party. That was the Super Bowl where Eli Manning threw the please catch this, and it was caught on the helmet, and they defeated the undefeated Tom Brady-led New England Patriots. Okay, there, yeah. That was like a, here you go, Indy. Uh, at halftime of the game, Sarah and I left their house, and we drove to Bloomington Normal uh, in, there in Illinois because Sarah was going to be induced because she was 41 weeks pregnant with our first child. She went into labor after being induced for about 12 hours, and the doctor came in and said, hey, you have 10 minutes, and he handed me some scrubs, and he said, uh, we need to do an emergency C-section because uh, things aren't necessarily progressing the way that we wanted them to. And all of a sudden, uh, it almost feels like things physically started to spin. Um, like, what? Uh, I thought we were kind of in the middle of this thing, and here's the scrubs in 10 minutes. Uh, no less than 15 minutes to the second, almost, after he said those words to me, I was holding my son. And my whole life changed. I could tell you everything about that operating room. Dr. Nord standing over the table, the nurses, where the baby bed was. I can tell you exactly when they handed him to me. I can tell you uh, cutting the cord. I can tell you all of those things with vivid clarity. It's burned into my brain. So they handed him to me and I was given the honor of walking him right outside the operating room and letting him meet his grandparents, Sarah's parents, for the first time. And as we walked through, there's this interesting thing in this operating room. You walk through a set of double doors, and you're kind of in this little middle room. Maybe that's how they're all designed. Then there's another set of double doors that would lead you out into the hallway. And so the nurse that was leading me out to uh, meet uh, the grandparents, uh, we walked through the first double door, and she walked through the second double door, and I just kind of stopped and let the doors close. And for just a minute... It was just me and him. I just thought, man, everything is going to be different. Everything's so different now. And I walked out and got to introduce him to grandparents. Fast forward 14 years, and we share the same shoes. <laughs> <laughs> he knows every single button of mine to push to get me going, and really seems to find great joy in pushing those buttons. It's cliche, but here's the thing. Like, cliches are true. Like, that's why we get frustrated. Yeah, everybody kind of knows that. But yet, man, it's so true. I could tell you that vivid thing about every one of my four children being born. And here's the cliche, right? Like, where did the time go? Like, what in the world? It truly does feel like just yesterday I was in that operating room. And now we're looking eye to eye and we're sharing shoes and think most of us would agree that that cliche is true, right? If you've had children, you know, like, man, the time just seems to be going so fast. Like, I don't feel like I was fully prepared for how quickly things continue to go. And we would also agree, man, this is such a great blessing. Getting to be parents is a huge blessing. It's also like times where we need to remind ourselves, hey, it's a huge blessing, remember? <laughs> because it's anything but fun. And they are wild and it's crazy and they're going 100 directions and they know those buttons to push and they're really good at pushing them at all seasons of life as they learn to adapt to how to you know, make things interesting for their parents, right? I love the way that Jim Gaffigan explains what it's like to have four kids. Check out how he says this. Four kids. If you want to know what it's like to have a fourth, just imagine you're drowning, and then someone hands you a baby. The good news is we live in a two-bedroom apartment, so I bought it. 
throw. I haven't slept in seven years. I didn't always look like this. I'm actually Puerto Rican. The wear and tear of parents. I used to have thick black hair. I was muy guapo. No mas. No more guapo. My wife had the baby at home. We had all our babies at home, just to make you feel uncomfortable. People don't want to hear about home birth. They're like, oh, you had your baby at home. Yeah, we were going to do that, but we wanted our baby to live. Four kids. Bedtime is a crisis. That's why I'm here right now. It's too hard. They act like they've never been to sleep before. Bed? What's that? No, I don't want to do that. Then it becomes some hostage negotiation. But in reverse. Look, if you stay in there, I will give you whatever you want. I will meet your demands. What do you want, a helicopter to Cuba? Anything. Just stay in there. There's always one awake. Like they're taking shifts. All right, I'll annoy them from midnight to two. Who wants three to six? Now let's lie down and practice kicking them in our sleep. Because my wife has instituted this open door policy where if one of our kids has a nightmare, they're welcome to come in our room and pee in our bed. <laughs> Luckily, that only happens every night. <laughs> it's pretty fun. I put that in there and I thought, how am I gonna reel them back in? Like I don't, that's gonna be hard. Let me, let me do it this way. Let me ask you this question. If I asked you, how would you answer, what is your family worth? Like, what's your family worth? You can ask that question about just about anything. Think about it. Like, what's your car worth? Well, it depends on the make and the model, the year, the condition. Plug it in the Kelly Blue Book and it'll spit out, hey, here's what you can sell it for. Here's what you can trade it in for. Here's the worth of your car. Lots of people in recent the last couple of years have been asking, hey, what, I wonder what our house is worth. Like, what's our home worth? Like, what could we sell it for? And so it depends on the, you know, the year it was built, the condition the home's in, the location that it's in, uh, the land that surrounds the home. You can go online and you can plug those things in and get a good idea of what your home is worth. I looked up this year what the most valuable home that sold in Indiana was this calendar year, $14 million. So somebody looked at that house and said, hey, this is worth it. It's worth paying this much for it. I plugged in one address just kind of thinking, is there a home where you, like these websites can't really give you the worth of it? And I found one that you can't really put a price tag on. The address is 3200 Mount Vernon Highway in Mount Vernon, Virginia. Zillow attempts to give it value at $86 million, but I think that's just for fun. The reason that nobody can buy this house, nobody can really afford to buy this house, is not because it's in great condition or the size or how awesome it is. The reason why is because it's based on who, who the house belongs to, who used to live in that house, a guy by the name of George Washington. It's priceless because it's his house. Because when you honor that 
home, you honor the one who made his home there. There's a Christian thinker and writer at Yale. His name is Nick Wolsterstoff, and he writes about this concept of bestowed worth. You see, it's not something you can really calculate. It's not something that you can earn. It's not really something that you can generate on your own. It's worth given to something. It's, hey, we're saying this is the worth that's bestowed upon this thing. And I think most of us would say that when it comes to our families, when it comes to children, when it comes to being parents, it's this element of bestowed worth. It's worth that was given to us by God. God has given this. He's the one that brought this family together. He's the one who makes his home here with us. So the worth of our home is determined by the one who bestows worth on it. And if we go back to the beginning, we would agree like, hey, that bestowed worth, that gift is awesome. But man, that season of having that gift moves really fast, oftentimes faster than we're really prepared for. And so you can go from operating room to a basketball court sharing shoes in what feels like, like no time. And so we need to be very intentional with this gift that we did not generate the worth that was bestowed upon this gift by the one who created the gift. As we understand that that gift moves and travels pretty quickly and pretty fast. So now the thing is we must be intentional with that which we didn't earn, that we don't deserve. This gift that's given to us, we must be intentional with. See, this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 6. For the first three chapters of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time a lot of time, are uh, discussing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, explaining in vivid detail the benefits of this good news message that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, a life you were incapable of living because of your sin, and then he died for your sins, and then he resurrected from the dead and gave you eternal life, the good news of Jesus, And the ripple effect it has into your life and the blessings and the benefit that come from a deeper understanding of that truth. And then in chapter 4, he begins to pivot and takes that deeper theology and begins to apply it to our lives. And at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, it really hones in on what we're calling this, bring it home. He brings it home and says, here's how this good news message impacts the relationships in your living room, around your kitchen table. We started with marriage. And talked about the purpose of marriage, according to what the Bible teaches. And now it's parenting. The Apostle Paul is going to talk to us about how intentional we need to be in parenting our children. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul starts off talking to the children in the congregation, which tells us that in Ephesus, where this letter Paul wrote would have been received, and in a setting where they would have gathered around, it would have been read out loud, that there would have been children present with the adults. And he begins his instructions on the home speaking directly to the children, and he points out two things to them. The first thing is the natural law. He says this in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then he has this phrase. He says, for this is right. What he's saying with that is this, honoring your parents is something that was built into the very fabric of creation. That when God created the world, he created it with natural laws, things that are just true based on the way things were 
created. In Romans chapter 1, he describes this. He says, when he created the world, there are things that you can know that are naturally right and naturally wrong. You don't even need to be taught these things. You just exist and observe creation around you, and there's something built into the fabric of creation, including you, that has this indication of this is right and this is wrong. This is the way God created the world. And as far as I can tell, there's no culture in the world where honoring your parents is not seen as the right thing to do. Because God designed it that way. Now, you could make an argument that like, hey, as they age and circumstances and situations, that becomes harder and there's all these dynamics and layers. Sure, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about in the very part of creation, just understanding that by nature, the way God created it, honoring and obeying your parents is seen as the right thing to do. The second thing he points out is what we would call the divine law. So you have the natural law just to say, this is just naturally what's right. The second part is the divine law. And he talks about this in verses two and three, where he quotes from the book of Exodus and he's quoting the 10 commandments. And he says, children, honor your father and mother, honor them. And this is the only command that comes with a promise that you may live a long life in the land. So he's quoting from the Old Testament law, and he's saying this, on top of the natural law, God gave us the divine law, meaning if you want to be one of his people, in the language we would use today, if you want to be an apprentice of Jesus, you want to follow Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, then there's a certain call placed on your life that in addition to you just knowing right from wrong, you have to go above that and honor your father and your mother, not just obeying them, but bringing honor to them. And this is a pretty strong command. In Colossians chapter 3, he reiterates this. He says this, Children, do what your parents tell you, because this delights the master to no end. Then he points out, now some of you are like, yes, man, my kids are going to hear this, right? He points out this promise, this is the only command that comes with a promise, that you would have a long life in the land. So you're thinking in your head, maybe like I did, like, hey, so you're saying if I honor my mother and father, then I'm going to live a long physical life. Well, that's not what he's saying. And you know that just because you know reality. There are kids that have honored their parents really, really well, whose lives were ended far sooner than we would have wanted, right? What he's speaking to is a group of people. What he's saying here is this is, this is more to be interpreted in general rather than to a specific person. In general, what he's saying is this, what's promised It's not so much a long life to each child that obeys his parents as much as the stability of the community moving forward, the health of the community. If you remember last week, we talked about the family unit, and we put a quote um, uh, by Tony Evans up, and it said, when you start with a healthy family, it ripples into a community, from a community into a nation, from a nation into the world. This is the idea Paul's getting at. When the father, when when the parent-child and child-parent relationships are healthy, the ripple effect of that is to have health and flourishing ripple out into every single part of life. The promise overall is saying that when there are healthy relationships in the home, every single person benefits from this. But now he does something even more interesting right there in verse 4. He shifts his attention over to the parents. And he did this when he talked about marriage, too. If you remember, this is kind of his style for this part. When he's talking about living out your faith in your home, he starts with roles. And with the marriage part, he said, wives, your role is to submit to love and support your husband. And everybody loves to take that and abuse it. We talked about all of that, and, and you can go back and listen to it. But he shifts right after that to the husbands when he's talking about marriage. And he says, now, husbands, you have a responsibility to create an environment where that role is possible. 
You have a responsibility to lead your home in such a way that that role is able. And he does the same thing with the parent-child relationship. He says, children, obey your parents. Children, honor your mother and fathers. Parents, it is your responsibility, your God-given responsibility to create the environment in which the children are able to honor and obey their parents. He says in verse 4, he says, do not exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This word exasperate, it's used really only here in Ephesians 6. There's a form of the word used in Romans 10. It literally means do not provoke to anger. And some of you are like, uh-oh. <laughs> right? You know, like the buttons you can push with your kids. You know that, hey, you're tired and frustrated and they're doing something. You say, because I said so. Because I'm in charge. Because you're going to listen to me. He says, don't do things intentionally or out of a lack of control of your emotions that create anger or frustration in your children. He goes on in Colossians 3.21 to give us a little more commentary on it. He says this, parents, do not come down too harsh on your children or you will crush their spirits. Right? I like the way one author put it. He says this, Paul, when talking about parenting, he's ruling out these things. He's ruling out excessive, severe discipline unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. And it's like, whoa. He's really emphasizing you have a responsibility to create the environment where your children are going to flourish. P.T. O'Brien's a New Testament scholar, and he says it this way. Behind the curbing of a father's authority is a very clear recognition from the Apostle Paul that children, while they are expected to obey their parents in the Lord, are persons in their own right who are not to be manipulated, exploited, or crushed. And I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of parents who don't pay attention to the tone of their home. They take it for granted. They assume that they'll always have time to correct course, and yet all of a sudden you're sharing the shoes because the time has flown by. See, the Apostle Paul tells us here, anger, you set the tone of the environment of your home, and anger is, and look, if you've been here, you know we did a whole thing on anger, and Paul repeats it through Ephesians. Anger is not to be included. Out-of-control anger, ungodly anger is not to be included in the forming of the tone of the home. I grew up in a home that had a lot of anger, a lot. Now, please hear me. There was a lot of love, too. But the anger was intense. Some of my earliest memories are the loudness and the words and the tone of voice. It oftentimes felt to me that as I was learning what it meant to live in a family, that if you could say something really, really mean or really, really loud, then all of a sudden you win. And if you win, then you're going to be okay. And I don't think anybody in my family growing up would have wanted to have that environment. But here's the thing. They didn't do anything in an intentional way to prevent it from happening. It just kind of became what we were. It was this thing handed down from generation to generation. When you're tired and you've worked hard and you feel like somebody owes you something and the world, you deserve something because all of a sudden all these emotions come in and you just drive home from work and you walk in the garage and it's just an anger fest because you had to put up with this and do you know what I've... And all, all of that tone happened. So some of my earliest memories were around all of that which meant we, we provoked one another to anger often in the home that I grew up in. And 
which meant it was really, really hard to honor each other in any way at all. So then I become a Christian. I go off to Bible college and I kind of leave that environment. And one of the biggest battles I've had in my journey with Christ is to be intentional about that. Like I can't let that happen. I can't repeat that cycle. And so I've consistently had to watch it. Why? Because naturally what happens in your family of origin during those formative years when your brain and your emotions are being formed, it's really hard to break later on in life. And you can't take it for granted. and You can't put your guard down. And here's the thing. I'm not perfect at it. There's been times where I've just assumed everything's good and all of a sudden my tone gets out of hand or I'm getting frustrated, not because I want to, but because it's in there and it comes out. And man, I've had to apologize and restart with my family over and over again. Why? Because I confuse my desire or my understanding that I deserve respect or my desire to protect them from something with my need to control and make demands. And while it doesn't happen very often, the few times that that has kind of started to happen, I've had to intentionally say, I, I got to step back and say, guys, I'm sorry. That's not who I want to be, and that's not who you need me to be. We're going to restart. By the grace of God, my family has been very gracious with me. But it's a responsibility that Paul's talking about here. That you set the tone of the environment of the home that gives the child the ability to learn what it means to obey to learn what it means to bring honor in the relationships that they're a part of. Here's what all of this means. Paul says next, he says, so if you don't want that, if you don't want to have an environment that provokes one another to anger and prevents honor, he says the solution then is to raise them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And here's what that means, essentially. Our number one objective as parents is not our child's athletic success. It's not. Our number one objective as parents, if you're a follower of Jesus, is not your child's personal comfort and happiness. The number one objective, if you're a follower of Jesus and you are a parent in leading your children, is not their academic success. It is not raising a responsible and contributing citizen of the United States. That is not the number one objective of Christian parenting. The number one objective of Christian parenting is to lead your children to know Jesus and walk closely with him. That is the number one goal we have as Christian parents. Now, here's what I found. A lot of Christian parents would say, amen, yes, but here's the statistics don't line up with that excitement that you feel inside of you when I make those statements. Someone in our church who's a part of the Colson Fellows that meets here, uh, Worldview Training, you'll hear more about that next year when signups come up and would encourage you to sign up for that. But one of those who's a Colson Fellow in training came to me and uh, brought me some research this past week as we were talking about different things. It was very helpful and timely. The Barna Group did some research, and that research was published this year, 2022. And in 2022, their research came out with this statistic. Only 2% of preteen parents, so 13 years old and younger, only 2% of these parents actually possess a biblical worldview. 2%. What that means is 9 out of 10 children, 12, 13 years old and younger, do not live in a home where a biblical worldview is valued and nurtured. 9 out of 10. 750, 800-ish people that show up to church here We've got a problem. We've got a problem on our hands. Part of that is a lack of inability or a lack of ability. It is an inability to do it. It's like, I just don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this. And that's fair. 
That's fair. What's not okay is throwing the vehicle in neutral simply because you don't know how to put it in drive. Get the help. And that's why we're here. But then there's this other part that just doesn't have the desire because the desires of the world have clouded out your responsibility to raise your children in a home where a biblical worldview is being nurtured. Something needs to change. The Apostle Paul's teaching here is pretty clear that the responsibility is, lies in the family. You parents are the number one disciplers of your children. I will say it this way, as I said in the marriage part of this series, your children are on a journey toward the throne of God, and God has given you the responsibility of getting them there safely. It is a very big responsibility, one that can feel overwhelming at times. Amen? Like, whoa, like this is, how do I do this? Andreas Kostenberger is a New Testament scholar, and he, he produced a list of five things that every Christian parent should desire to give to their kids and work hard to give. It's kind of a way to form some values that you might have in your home to say, how do we begin to nurture and take steps toward this? And uh, Shelby mentioned we're going to send out an email. If you haven't filled out a Connect card, fill one out so we can send out some resources through email for continuing to, to be able to do this. But here's a list of five things that have helped me with Ephesians chapter 6. The first one on Kostenberger's list is this. Love the Lord. It's the number one thing we should want to give our children. Nurturing a heart that deeply loves, fears, and desires a close and personal relationship with God. But here's the thing. You can't lead them where you're not going. And I don't know if you've learned this, but I've noticed this in my parenting. You can't fake it. You just can't. They know. More is caught than taught. You can verbally say all the things that you want to say, but then they're watching you relate as a married couple. They're watching the love and affection that you show one another. They're watching whether or not you ever open your Bible except on Sunday morning sitting in this room. They're watching what you're watching and the media that you're consuming. They are learning from all of it, and you can't fake it can't fake it. If you want your children to love the Lord, to have a very real relationship with him, you must start with your own relationship with him and do whatever is necessary to get your heart in alignment with the heart of God so your children benefit from the overflow. Number two, humility. Encouraging a submissive attitude toward those in authority. Whoo, <laughs> that's fun. It's real fun, isn't it? Now, we talked about it. Nowhere in the Bible are children called to follow their, par their parents into sin. In the same way, wives are never called to follow their husbands into sin. That's not what submission means. Biblical submission is about looking and being wise about how you relate to those in authority over you. We're not called to follow anyone into sin. But the point here is to teach kids to have humility, to not always have to be right about everything. To not always have to share their opinion about everything. To not always have to get their way. To actually be able to serve even when it's difficult and inconvenient. To be able to put the interests of others over and above their own. But here's the deal. If we as parents are constantly whining about leadership in every capacity, why are we surprised when our kids grow up to do the same thing? If we're whining about the government, whining about uh, our jobs, whining about every sort of leadership, just crying and whining and sharing negative opinions about everything, and we're not critically thinking and engaging our kids and teaching them how to, hey, I don't like this, but here's how we have to view it. But instead, we just share our negative opinions all the time. Why are we so surprised when that's what we're producing? Paul's call here is to live with humility, to have the humility to say, look, this isn't easy. 
But we're, we're called to submit to authority, not following them into sin, but not always having to get our way about everything. Here's one thing I've learned along the way. It was helpful. A tip, if you will. One of the lessons I've learned is this. I'm, I'm naturally extroverted, I, I'm, and, I, and I preach, and so like, right, you've, right, if you've been around, you're like, yeah, he does, right? Uh, and so it's easy for me to just talk and teach, right? Because I'm doing that in every single place that I go. That's not always helpful to my kids. What's helped my kids is to stop making statements and start asking questions. Ask really good questions. Jesus modeled this for us, right? Like I just, hey, have you thought about this? Or hey, th- have you thought about thinking about it this way? What do you think about this? And, and when you do this and you get good at asking really good questions, you can direct the conversation in the way that your child should go. And when they get there, guess what? They'll own the conclusion better than they will the one that you're force feeding them with your opinions all the time. Number three, wisdom. Maintaining an appropriate separation from the ways of the world and living in the company of the wise. I've said this before. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. This is what we're wanting our kids to do, to choose wisely where they spend their time, to choose wisely where they spend their money. But guess what? We must go first. If we're not exercising wisdom in the home, we're not going to give them the wisdom that they need helping them understand why God's ways really are more fulfilling. It's not just about obedience. It's like, man, when we live this way, life is just more fulfilling and it's better. Let's be wise about these choices. We have to go first. Number four, a biblical worldview. This one's big. Fostering biblical thinking and interpreting life from a biblical perspective. Helping your kids think critically about how the Bible informs how you interpret the world around you. One of the things that your kids should do when they sit back and they are sitting in an office with someone like me, okay, and they're doing what we call premarital counseling, and we get to this section that we call family of origin. It's always fun. And we sit and we talk through childhood, and it really is. Like, we learn a lot, and no family only gives their kids wounds. But guess what? Every family gives their kids wounds, okay? And you talk through the effect of those things. One of the things they should look back on with their time and their family is consistently hearing their parents say, hey, how should Christians think about that? As a follower of Jesus, how should we think about that? And then not following that up with, well, I think Christians should. No, like following up with, hey, what what does the Bible teach? Because that's the foundation of the entire Christian worldview. So what's the Bible say about this? Let's explore. And here's the deal. When you don't know, guess what you say? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And guess what that does? That gets your kids donuts the next day and gets you a second conversation. When you go to the donut shop, you say, you know that question you asked me last night? I did a little bit of research. Man, I'd love to talk about this. Hey, did you know this? And all of a sudden, you're creating an environment where they're learning how to think through the lens of the Bible with their everyday life. And number five, spiritual depth. Developing biblical self-awareness, including knowing their spiritual giftedness and God's will for their lives. Here's how I would put that. They learn how to apply their reading of the gospel to themselves, allowing it to read them, knowing, I need to repent. I've messed up. I need to not just talk about grace. I need to walk in grace and learn to forgive myself. I need to learn what it means to cultivate the gifts God has given me for his glory and not my own. A depth to their spirit because of their close walk with the Lord. So let me ask you this question. It's a hard one. Are you cultivating that kind of an environment in your home? with these kind of values? Is this what you're giving to your children? 
Now let me offer you a little bit of encouragement because that, that question hurts. <laughs> Here's the beautiful thing. You can start doing that right now. Right now. If, you're not, if you don't have kids yet, you're married and you don't have kids, you don't start doing this when they get here. You start doing these things before they get here. So this is the environment they're welcomed into that has values like this. If you've got grown children and you feel like, man, time went by fast, it was like, whoa, and I may have already messed this thing up. Here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of this. Never underestimate the power of a good apology and a commitment to consistency and faithfulness moving forward. It is such a beautiful display of the gospel when we say, hey, I, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know that I got this right. I, I think I messed this up. I'm sure I didn't do all bad, but man, I wish I would have done better. And never underestimate the power of intentionally getting your kids away from whatever would distract you, looking at them and saying, I'm really sorry. But moving forward, I want things to look different. I want things to be different. One of the things I love about being a pastor is trying to help people understand that all the pages that have writing on them, the chapters that have already been written, don't necessarily have to define the ones that are blank. Because of Jesus, you can start writing a better story, and you've got a lot of blank pages ahead of you to start writing. But you have to choose to do that. See, the goal of parenting is the spiritual health of our children. They're on a journey toward the throne of God, and it is our responsibility to help get them there. This is a picture, one of the only pictures I have of my family growing up. That is me with the awesome hair sticking up eating, pretty normal. Um, that's my little brother, and that's my mom and my dad. This picture is kind of hard. I didn't get the opportunity to be shaped and molded by them. I don't know what it's like to look at this picture and have memories of, like, what was it like to grow up in my home? What lessons did I learn? It wasn't long after this picture was taken that my dad was shot and killed. And everything changed. From time to time, I pull this picture out. And I look at it, and I just wonder what would have been, like what could have been. And there's a lot that I'm grateful for that came through all of that difficulty. But as I was reading Ephesians 6, it hit me when, when I looked at this picture this time that there's going to come a day when my kids are older. And they're going to open a photo album, and they're going to look at a picture and a question that really should be an encouragement but might be difficult is this. What's going to come to mind when your kids look back at family pictures? What's going to come to their mind? They look at that picture and the memories that come with it. Is it going to be, man, that's, that's a picture of the family where I grew up where they were constantly pushing me to be perfect at everything. Man, that's the picture of the family where I had these unrealistic expectations placed on my life that I could, felt like I could never live up to. Well, that's a family that had a lot of anger, made it hard for me to honor them. That's the family that, man, I, I know my number one goal was like, man, to live for the American dream at all costs, whatever that is. Or, or, will they look back and say, man, that's where I learned to love Jesus. That's where I learned to look at the world through the lens of the Bible. That's the foundation upon which I've built my whole life. You're the primary disciplers. I've told you this. My goal in life, it's, it's pretty simple. My number one goal in life is I have this vision, and it helps me. I don't know if it'll help you. It's kind of morbid, but I have this vision. I can see my casket. 
And I want more than anything for my kids to look at my casket and say, man, that's the godliest man I ever knew. I want my wife to be able to look at that and say, man, I would do it all over again. I would do it all over again because of Jesus. Let me encourage you with two things and we'll pray. Number one, please don't underestimate the power of a good apology. So powerful when we can own it and just say, man, I'm sorry when I've fallen short and I want to do better. And by the grace of God, I think we can do better. Don't underestimate the power of a good apology. And here's the thing. When you're on the receiving end of that apology, cut some slack. You know how much courage it takes for someone to sit and just own it and just say, I'm sorry. Just give them a little grace. Begin to start writing a different story. Number two, wake up. We have a crisis on our hands. Nine out of ten kids are growing up in homes where a biblical worldview isn't being nurtured or valued. And the solution to that is right here. The church is God's plan A. We lead the way. And we need to wake up and take on the responsibility of being the primary disciples in our homes. Let's pray. Father, this is such a noble and incredible gift with bestowed worth from you, the one who brought our families together and breathed life into our children. What a gift. God, I imagine there's some people in the room, and my heart breaks for them as they carry guilt and some shame, feeling like they've already messed it up. And I just pray for your grace on their lives. I pray, Father, that they would be reminded that the story's not finished that you're the author of the story, that they would come to know your grace, have the courage to offer a sincere apology and to begin to commit to living consistent and faithful. Father, for those of us with kids at home, help us to wake up. We need your help. We need your power. As Paul wrote in Ephesians, we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need more of the Holy Spirit directing the tone and the atmosphere of our homes, creating an environment where our kids, on their path to your throne, get their will. God, we want to be a part of the solution to the crisis that we're up against. We want to point more and more people to you. We offer you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond with worship.